podcast, March 31st. So March going out today like a lion, cold, nasty. So um, I don't know that it matters how March goes out. Isn't it how March comes in that's supposed to predict the weather? Uh, nice, lousy, nice, lousy, nice, lousy. So other words, uh, Ohio in March and April. That's what we're getting this week as we build toward Good Friday. Uh, it's Holy Week. We'll get into a faith portion of the podcast a little bit later on. But we got a lot of sports to talk about. we got Buckeye football, Buckeye basketball. we got a new player on the roster, and hey, Maybe he's bringing somebody with him. That would be interesting. Uh, we have a Final Four, an interesting Final Four, a historic file, Final Four, and we have Justin Fields' Pro Day and the rest of the Buckeyes' Pro Day. So let's get right to it with a reminder first off that Willis Spangler Starling is my law firm, and I think you'll be extremely pleased if they become your law firm as well. Willis Spangler Starling is located in Hilliard. You can find them online at willisattorneys.com. And their specialties run the gamut. I mean, personal injury, that's a big one. Workers' compensation is a big part of their practice as well. Wills, estate planning, employment law, so many situations come up at work. So when you need an attorney, the time to find one is before you need one, so you don't do it out of desperation and end up with somebody that really doesn't reflect your character and your integrity. You won't have to worry about that with Willis Spangler Starling. I love their partners, love their mission, love the way they invest in people. So they're my law firm and will be for as long as I am not covered up with dirt. <laughs> Willis Spangler Starling online at willisattorneys.com. Speaking of uh, the threat of being covered up with dirt, wow, that was a scary moment last night in the Elite Eight when the official just fell down. Looked like, I guess he fainted uh, in the Gonzaga USC game, but I was kind of surprised CBS showed as much of him on the ground as they did, and I was kind of surprised they showed him falling to the ground. I mean, I just thought they'd, you know, cut away, but he appears to be fine. And that's, uh, that's good because that would have certainly uh, been a real uh, bad intrusion on a great event. I love the Elite Eight. I covered the Final Four and the NCAA basketball tournament in my role at the Plain Dealer from 1988. And the last one that I went to with the Plain Dealer was 2005, skipped 2006, and then of course was back in 2007 in Atlanta at the Georgia Dome for Ohio State over Georgetown and Ohio State's loss to Florida in the national title game. And this Final Four will be unlike any other in that there's no team from east of the Mississippi River. Michigan was the last hope last night. Very late. If you stayed up to watch it, you know that UCLA and Mick Cronin are the Cinderella story of this tournament. Yes, UCLA, a Cinderella story. UCLA that has more titles than anybody, more titles than probably two teams put together. They are uh, getting it done with Johnny Juzang and Mick Cronin defense as they held Michigan, Michigan, to 49 points. Wow. That's some serious defense by the Bruins. And Michigan didn't shoot it well, but usually when good teams fall in the NCAA tournament, Ohio State against Oral Roberts, Michigan against UCLA, they shoot it bad. And wow, did Michigan shoot it bad. Franz Wagner, one for 10. Woo! Airballed a wide open go ahead three pointer with like, I don't know, 19 seconds left, something like that, maybe less. Um, Mike Smith struggled from the field, he was one for 10. Um, so they really struggled, and I don't object because uh, I have for Michigan basketball the same disdain you all have for Michigan football. I don't find Michigan football relevant enough to have disdain for them. It's like having disdain for a baby seal uh, who, you know, so <laughs> to me, that's like nonsensical. 
You save your disdain for programs that are a threat. Michigan football is no threat to Ohio State right now or for the foreseeable future. But this Final Four is unique in that it is why you're crazy if you have the same expectations for your college basketball program of choice among power conference teams that you have for your elite college football program. Right now, on March the 31st, if I said, hey, tell me who's going to be in the college football playoff this this uh, coming January, you'd say, well, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and uh, I don't know, somebody. And you'd probably be right on two or three of those counts. If I came back to you in June and I said, hey, who's going to be in the Final Four in March of 2022? You'd be lucky to get one out of four. Now, last year at this time, or last year in the summertime, probably people would have probably picked Gonzaga, but you didn't really know how good Jalen Suggs was going to be. You didn't know Drew Timmy was going to be as good as he is after his freshman year. So, uh, would anybody have picked Houston? Probably not. Would anybody have picked Baylor? Yeah, maybe. Maybe Baylor. But there's 10 other teams you'd pick along with Baylor. So, it's way different in basketball. Because in basketball, you know, you have an off night. Football, what you do to be great is more sustainable. Speed, power, leaping ability, scheme. It's just more sustainable. Basketball, you got to put that little ball in the little hoop. And if you don't, it's a problem. And Michigan faced that last night. They just did not shoot well. They were uh, not good from the line either. Six of 11. Mike Smith, their point guard, went 0 for 2. Missed both ends of a two-shot foul. Hunter Dickinson, who's pretty solid at the line, was one for four. So it just was not Michigan's night. And it's never a bad night to me when Juwan Howard and Jalen Rose walk off the floor disconsolate. So I'm happy for Mick Cronin. I tweeted something last night that was wrong. I tweeted that a year ago Mick Cronin was at UC and it wasn't hired at UCLA until April 9th. Where did the year go? Like, he was hired at UCLA in 2019. Because we didn't have an NCAA tournament last year, it's like that year was sucked right out of all of our brains. Like, I didn't know Mick Cronin left US, UC two years ago. Okay, whatever. But uh, I was listening to the Bill Cunningham show on WLW yesterday. Shout out to the great American, Willie, and Seg Dennison, and the Stooge Report. And on the Stooge Report, which is their little sports thing that they do at 1.30, they were talking about John Brannon, the head coach at UC, being out of a job. That UC wanted to part ways with him because of player revolt. So I'm looking online last night, and there's nothing out there about John Brannon being let go, forced out, uh, fired for cause. So I think he's in the jackpot, but Mick Cronin hit the jackpot. He's got UCLA in the Final Four, and anybody who didn't like Mick Cronin's hiring at UCLA, which was everybody who went, huh, Mick Cronin, UCLA? <laughs> well, he's won them over now. So uh, they play Gonzaga in the national semifinal Saturday. Wow, let me say something about Gonzaga. I, I would venture to say that in this modern era of basketball, which I would count from like the three-point era, okay? So what is that, 86 on? I don't know. I, don't have, I may not have the year right. Pretty much when we started, not, not the very first year of the three-pointer because a lot of coaches were – you know, not converts, but now you get a fast break. Guys don't run to the basket. They run to the three-point line. So I would consider this like the most, the modern, modern era of basketball. Gonzaga 
is, well, granted, one of few teams that gets to the uh, Final Four undefeated with a chance to duplicate what Indiana did in 1976, go undefeated first team since then. Gonzaga plays unbelievably loose for the quote-unquote pressure of finishing the season undefeated. Now, they could play loose because, you know, who have they played in the tournament yet that you thought could really give them a game? Now, that could be because Gonzaga is just amazingly deep and passes the ball well, but they are really good. I mean, super good. Duh, Captain Obvious, they're undefeated. Well, they play in the West Coast Conference, so they play in a nothing conference. And I think that helps them. I think that helps them because night in, night out, they're not going to lose in the West Coast Conference. But here's what I see with Gonzaga. I mentioned their passing. Their passing's amazing. Their defense is amazing. I could see them having an off night shooting from the field, but they don't shoot, to me, a ton of threes. They shoot mid-range and layups. And the guy on their team who is just an uncommon weapon is Drew Timmy, their center. And Drew Timmy is the, this is honestly the truth, Drew Timmy is the first college basketball player to remind me of Larry Bird since Larry Bird. And I don't mean Drew Timmy is Larry Bird or will be Larry Bird or has all the qualities of Larry Bird, but Drew Timmy is like an old school, inventive, intuitive basketball player. He's not the fastest. He's not the highest jumping. He's not the best shooting. He is so creative and crafty and nifty and just inventive around the basket that he's a matchup nightmare for people. First play of the game last night against USC, he gets switched off on their point guard on a high screen and roll. He picks the guy's pocket and goes down the floor, gets fouled, trying to go in for a layup. So Mark Few's done a great job, but again, let me just say, would you predict in the college football playoff that two non-Power 5 schools would make it? Of course not. The National Championship of College Basketball Final Four includes Houston of the America Athletic Conference and Gonzaga of the West Coast Conference. Okay? That's never happening in college football. So that's kind of my way of saying Michigan fans, back off Jawan Howard. Illinois fans, back off Brad Underwood. Ohio State fans, back off Chris Holtman. Oh, we lost to a 15. Oh, did... Oral Roberts go away after that? Did they meekly exit stage left? I seem to remember them winning their second game against Florida. And then I seemingly remember them taking Arkansas right to the buzzer, a team that throttled them during the regular season. Teams get on rolls in the tournament. They get a hot streak. Matchups make a difference. You cannot begin to equate the difficulty of winning a college basketball national championship with a college football national championship. Now, if Spiels were here, he would start this age-old argument that we've been having every year, and he wins the argument every year because I, I don't disagree with him that Ohio State should aspire to win national championships in basketball. Yes, two things can be true at once. Ohio State has all the resources and should be in the hunt for a Sweet 16 berth, and then every, you know, so often when it breaks right and you get a good draw and you shoot well and you should be in contention for Elite Eight and Final Four. You can win a national championship at Ohio State, no doubt. But there are, what, how many schools? I can't even count them up. How many national titles does Jay Wright want at Villanova? Two. Villanova doesn't even play D1 football, okay? So 
you got a lot more contenders in basketball. It's possible you can aspire to it and have the ability to do it. It's also true it's way harder, and it is way harder. So um, that's just how I feel about college basketball and the difficulty of winning a national championship. Reminder, Hemisphere Coffee Roasters has a new flavor, bourbon barrel-aged coffee. It's awesome coffee. All their coffee is awesome. Their mission is awesome. They buy their coffee direct from growers around the world. Those growers make more money than they would if they went through greedy government middlemen. And then that money circulates throughout their impoverished communities in Indonesia, Nicaragua, Thailand. Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, you can feel good about the mission. You're going to love the coffee. Mr. Spielman is a discerning coffee buyer. He loved Hemisphere Coffee Roasters coffee. My daughters love it. I try not to drink it because... um, I don't need extra caffeine in my life, so that's the only reason I don't drink it. I know I could get decaffeinated, but it's just uh, something that I have not. I, I do love it when I go out there, though. I'll tell you that. Uh, I, I use it as a treat, as a uh, special way to accent my day when I visit Paul, Grace, Andy, and all the great people at Hemisphere Coffee Roasters in Mechanicsburg. Okay, let's transition. Did I go through the Michigan? I did. I went through the college basketball and why it's tougher. The lousy shooting by Michigan. Franz Wagner getting the Ryan Hamby treatment from Michigan fans now. They want Franz Wagner's head on a platter. How about a little Ohio State hoops before we get to Ohio State football? Buckeyes had a player last night. And honestly, when I saw this come across uh, Twitter, I was like, hmm, that's not what I expected. If you had started the day yesterday and say, hey, Bruce, When you're watching NCAA basketball tonight, news will come down that Ohio State has added a Penn State transfer. And while I don't know that I could execute a cartwheel, I would have certainly given it a go because I would have expected that to be John Harar, the Penn State center, who is my man crush for Ohio State to add next season for multiple reasons. Number one, I like second shots, and John Harar is a great offensive rebounder. I think Ohio State needs a big body in there in case, heaven forbid, Hunter Dickinson comes back to Michigan next season or Chet Holmgren ends up at Minnesota. Um, I like to have a big body who can bang and get me eight points a game and eight rebounds a game. So Harar, who's a Charlie Atlas type, would look great in the middle of an Ohio State lineup. Now, I do think that Kyle Young is coming back. C.J. Walker is not. I would expect an announcement this week that Kyle Young is coming back. Kyle's had time for, literally and figuratively, his head to clear from his second concussion in the final several weeks of the season. And Kyle just strikes me as a young man who would like to come back to school. He's a little younger than C.J. Walker. He's been at Ohio State four years, not five out of high school like C.J. Walker, who transferred from Florida State. So I think they're going to keep Kyle Young. And do they have to add a big no But would it augment their roster nicely? Yes. But the Penn State transfer Ohio State got last night was not John Harar, was not Miles Dredd. It was Jamari Wheeler, their point guard, three-year starting point guard for the Nittany Lions. He is a defensive nightmare. He's all Big Ten defensive team twice. He gets 1.8 steals a game, which is an amazing Average. That's amazing to average 1.8 steals a game. His assist to turnover ratio is better than 2 to 1. Gotta love that. 4.2 to 1.8 turnovers per game. And so he's a nice player. Decent three point shooter, 36%. Not a big scorer. 
averages six points a game. I don't need my point guard to be a big scorer, but I need him to be a guy you have to respect on the perimeter. So he's not Aaron Kraft out there who you can leave alone, except if you're Iowa State at UD in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So I like the Wheeler ad the more I think about it. Because initially I was going, another guard, really? A guard? We got Dwayne Washington, we got Michi Johnson, we got Jimmy Sotos, like Malachi Branham coming in, like another guard. Hmm? And he's not a big guard. He's not a Luther Muhammad guy who could swing and guard wings. So it puzzled me in the beginning, but then I realized how many times Chris Holtman talked about defensive improvement and what is probably the number one thing you have to do to be good defensively. Pressure the ball. Make the entry passes hard. Make it a nightmare for opposing point guards. And I don't really think Ohio State had the ability to do that last year. C.J. Walker's a nice guard for a lot of reasons. He's not a defensive stopper. He got posted a bunch against Oral Roberts. Now, Jamari Wheeler's tiny. Weighs 170 pounds. I think he's like 6'1 or 2. He's a threat to get posted too. But I just, uh, I think Wheeler gives, let's put it this way. If you're going to add a player, you want to add a skill set you don't have. And that is what they are doing with Jamari Wheeler. Now, my little birdies tell me, my spies tell me, that Jabari, J- uh, Jamari Wheeler's Penn State roommate is... Yeah, wait for it, kids. John Harar. They're roommates. Okay. So what's Ohio State? They got a little something, something going there. They have contacted John Harar. They are interested in John Harar. I don't know if John Harar called today and said, hey, I'm coming. I don't know if Ohio State would say, okay, awesome. Let's put the tweet out. Because they're in on a five-star center from IMG Academy, Efton Reed. Now, Efton Reed is like the number 23 player in the country. He's the number 23 player in the country because he's seven feet tall. And he's a nice problem to have if you get him, assuming he's a good kid, which I would assume Ohio State wouldn't recruit him if he wasn't. Is Efton Reed going to come in here and expect to be a one-and-done? Because I'm not sure that works, because the ball's got to go to E.J. Liddell and Dwayne Washington, and Justice Suing's got to have it some... And if Seth Towns is healthy, please, that would be nice. He's going to have to have it some. Malachi Branham's going to have to have it some. I don't know that Efton Reed comes in here and commands a bunch of passes into the low post. I don't really think that's how Ohio State wants to play. And I don't want Efton Reed shooting threes. I just don't. Okay? John Harar will not shoot threes. He will rebound missed threes. So how long? They got two weeks until the spring signing period begins. It goes all the way to August. Now, you're not going to be able to get any kind of a big man in the transfer portal if you wait all the way to August. You'll get some big dude who played like two minutes a game and averaged a point a game if you wait that long. But right now, there's pickings out there. Miles Johnson from Rutgers. He's from Long Beach, California. I would expect him. If he hasn't already committed, I would expect him to go someplace closer to back home. Harar is from like east, kind of central, southeast. Southeast <laughs> Central PA. Okay. So he's Southeast, but he's a little bit more. He's not like in the corner of Pennsylvania. And that, of course, is close to uh, Rutgers and it's close to Maryland. Maryland would love to have him. Rutgers would love to have him. Does, Jerron Har- does John Harar want to win a national championship? If he does, he'll come to Ohio State. If he wants to just play out the string, be close to home, 
Yeah, he'd probably go to Maryland. Although, better be careful if Mark Turgeon's still at Maryland because a lot of people mention Mark Turgeon for the Oklahoma opening because Maryland fans are starting to go, hey, Mark Turgeon, come on, baby. When are you going to win big over here? When are you going to be Gary Williams? Answer, never. Okay, uh, let me now mention my friends at auiinfo.com. They're the health insurance brokerage that can provide you with all the answers that you need to all your questions about your health insurance. Why would you have questions about your health insurance? Because the president has opened the open enrollment window for this month, and we don't know when he's going to shut it. Maybe he'll wake up one day and say, no more open enrollment. Who knows? Maybe they'll slip him a cue card, and he'll be able to say, no more open enrollment. I don't know, but I know it's open now, and I know auiinfo.com can get you the info you want to know about, is my doctor still on that plan? Is my hospital that I prefer to go to still on that plan? You wouldn't want to be from Hilliard or Dublin and find out that Dublin Methodist is not in the plan, and you got to go all the way to Pickerington for your hospital. No, you wouldn't want to find that out. How could you find that out? By getting a hold of auiinfo.com on the web and plug your questions into the chat. Take the pulse. Ha! See what I did there? Take the pulse of your health insurance, how much you're paying, what kind of coverage you have. They can help you switch if you want to. They can get you better coverage. And you don't pay them. The health insurance companies pay them for putting them with nice new customers like you. Okay. Let's go now to Ohio State's Pro Day. We have to go in our minds because we're not allowed in there with our bodies. But you watched some of it, I'm sure, on ESPN. And wow, did Justin Fields look great. Now, is anybody surprised that Justin Fields is a phenomenal athlete who can make all the throws? Oh, if you are, you haven't been paying attention because he had two phenomenal years at Ohio State. And... Justin Fields is not, I don't think, going to be on the board when Mr. Spielman's Lions pick at number seven. I believe he will be off the board by the third pick in the draft. Now, I may be proven a liar there because Trevor Lawrence is going to Urban Meyer number one. What about Urban? Can you imagine if Urban would, like, shake up the draft and trade out of one down to two or three Uh, If you're the New York Jets and Urban Meyer calls you on the phone and says, hey, I know you want to take Zach Wilson from uh, from, uh, Brigham Young, but what if I gave you access to Trevor Lawrence? What would the Jets give to move up a spot? What would the Niners give to move up two spots? Although the Niners, their trade with the Dolphins, they don't have a whole lot more to give. They'd give you Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm sure of that. So Urban's probably going to take Trevor Lawrence, but if there's anybody who's going to shake up the draft with an unexpected pick at the top. I mean, Urban would have reason to love Justin Fields, would he not? Of course he would. He's watched him close range. Justin had a phenomenal pro day, as anybody with a brain knew he would. He's fast. He's accurate. He's athletic. Um, here's my only... It's uh, it's not really a question. It's just that here's the difficulty with judging Justin Fields in the most important area for any quarterback, and that is leadership. And how will teammates respond to him? We don't get to see Justin lead Ohio State football. We get to see him be a great player. We see uh, vestiges of his leadership with the way his teammates responded to him when he's doing his goofy dances up in front of the room and stuff like that. NFL is a different animal. Grown men who are the absolute best at what they do, who 
may not respond to that kind of same college level silliness and, and lighthearted fun. So Justin comes off around media interviews, which I'm admitting right now is a kind of a false positive in terms of testing his leadership ability. He comes off extremely quiet. And in huddles, though, I'm not in there. I don't know. Maybe he's a super take charge guy. He's a lead by example guy, clearly, from how he um, played for Ohio State, how he bounced back from injury at Michigan, how he toughed out the end of his first year with the Buckeyes after the knee injury against Penn State, getting them all the way to the title game. So I thought scouts, and we're getting into the silly season where every little thing you do is going to be nitpicked like a cat in biology class um, <laughs> or a frog dissected with, oh, his throwing motion's got a little hitch in it, which I didn't think they'd love his throwing motion. I didn't think they'd love that because he's not, he's got a little bit of a windy upper, you know, throwing motion, but we'll see. But here back to the draft, you assume Trevor Lawrence goes one. If the rumors are right and the Jets love Zach Wilson, the Niners at three supposedly love Trey Lance, the kid from North Dakota State. But would I bet money that Justin Fields would be still on the board at four? No, I would not. No, I would not. Let's say there's a team that loves Justin Fields and really wants him and they're afraid the Jets or the Niners may take him. They may trade with the Jets to get up to two, and the Jets may be willing to trade down to four because if you can get Zach Wilson at four, you'd rather get him at four than two because he'll be. it's not really a function of how much money he'll make. It's a function of the extra draft pick you'd get for dropping down two spots. So it would not surprise me if Justin Fields is off the board in the first three because he is that good. Uh, here's Daniel on Twitter. Uh, excuse me, Daniel on Facebook. Daniel, thanks for watching the podcast. Thanks for sending me a message. He says... Jamari Wheeler will be motivated if OSU gets Harar, it's a big win. I can't blame Wheeler and possibly Harar for wanting a chance to win. Penn State is now in a true rebuild with a new coach. They are. Micah Shrewsbury is their new coach. I actually kind of thought that Micah Shrewsbury might be able to put the whole thing back together again and get um, get those guys to come back. He's gotten one to come back for sure. Uh, Shrewsbury's from the Gene Cady, Matt Painter tree. So... Um, I think, though, once you make up your mind to leave, it's hard for the new guy to convince you to stay. And it's a thing now. Everybody's in the transfer portal. You not only have to recruit the team you have coming in, you got to recruit the team you had the year before. What about room for John Harar? Ohio State right now is not over the limit on scholarships on basketball because Kyle Young and Jimmy Sotos get the extra year with no penalty from the NCAA for the pandemic. If they add another guy, somebody would have to leave. And here's what I predict will happen with Ohio State's basketball roster. I predict they will have a scholarship to give because I think eh, either Musa Jallo or Ibrahima Diallo are candidates to leave. Musa's been a program four years. How many minutes is he going to get next year? If Musa would transfer to a Missouri Valley school, to a um, mid-major program, Butler. I don't know if Butler has a spot, but Musa at Butler, he'd be a nice player. He's just not going to get a ton of minutes at Ohio State. And i got to think a guy in his fifth year with the opportunity to play more minutes, he may want to look somewhere else. Um, so that's what I envision. 
uh, with Ohio State basketball. And where is that scholarship going to come from if they get uh, the big kid from Florida or if they get John Harar or whoever they get? Uh, I predict they will have somebody leave via transfer. That's just pretty normal at this time of year. Now, as for the rest of the Buckeye football players in Pro Day, Tommy Togiai, strong, nasty, going to be a, you know, somebody's going to fall in love with Tommy Togiai. And wherever you get Tommy Togiai, if you get Tommy Togiai below the third round, uh, my guess is you got a pretty good player. Jonathan Cooper tested well. Uh, Trey Sermon was not as fast as he wanted to be. Trey Sermon is, I don't know about Trey Sermon as an NFL player because, you know, for 10, how many ever many games last year, Trey Sermon was inconsequential for Ohio State football. And then, boom, out of nowhere against Northwestern and Clemson. And then, like a vapor in the night, vanished after one carry against Alabama with a very unfortunate injury. So Trey Sermon is an NFL player. I can't predict running backs, man. They are just, I mean, some you can. Uh, Travis Etienne is going to be a really good NFL player because he can catch the ball. He can return kicks. He's going to be a, a really nice player. But Trey Sermon, I don't know. I don't know. The guy who would excite me if I'm an NFL team that if I got him on day three, but I don't think he's going to be there on day three, is Pete Werner. Now, I say that through no insight of my own. I say that because Spiels loved Pete Werner when everybody in Ohio State's fandom was crushing Pete Werner. That was two years ago. I don't know. It was the year they were really awful on defense. The year they beat Maryland by a point and survived a two-point conversion. The Dwayne Haskins year, the Rose Bowl year, Urban's final year. Yeah, three years ago, I guess, because Ryan's coached two years. We saw multiple times that year, Pete Werner, the back of Pete Werner and Tough Borland's jerseys chasing guys down the field. And the assumption when you see a guy chasing somebody is, well, he blew it. That guy got away from him. And Spiels always told me, no, 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 no. Pete Werner is a really good player, really good athlete. He tested great yesterday. Pete Werner's fast. He had 39 and a half inch vertical jump. 39 and a half inch vertical jump. Whoa. That is super, super, super fast. Baron Browning's an athlete. Everybody knows that. Baron, Baron's production does not match Baron's athletic, athletic ability during his Ohio State career. I cannot get out of my mind the number of times Baron Browning was around a tackle within an arm's length of a tackle, particularly in that loss to Clemson, and he did not get it done. So I just think Pete Werner is a guy. I remember what he did to Penn State's tight end. Firemuth and Pete Werner, to me, is a guy who can play in the NFL and be a three-down linebacker in the NFL. He ran a 4-5-8. That's plenty fast enough. Um, so I like Pete Werner. So that's uh, the Ohio State breakdown on your pro day. Okay, uh, let's transition into the faith portion of the podcast here as we are just about yep at the 30-minute mark, which is what I like to do in terms of splitting the content. Appreciate all of you guys watching. I would appreciate... Uh, emails to uh, wetacklelife at gmail.com. And I do want to thank those of you who have posted an iTunes review. I checked the other day and we had three new ones. So that's always nice. Post a five-star iTunes review. That would really help us. Um, I don't know why, but podcast reviews on Apple, you come up in Google searches and stuff like that. So would really appreciate an iTunes review, an honest iTunes review. And I assume if you're listening to the podcast, you like it. 
Tell us why you like it, what you like about it, and always, if you want something else, send me an email, wetacklelife at gmail.com. All right, in the faith portion of the podcast today, I talked the other day about the intersection of culture and faith. And I am, as I engage in my radio show on 98.9 The Answer, trying to illuminate things that I find to be threatening to our productive national conversations, which are local conversations extrapolated over a wider geographic area. And I'm particularly uh, motivated by protecting our kids from erroneous thought and um, dark teaching about how we relate to each other. I do not believe we are a country where people who are not crazy people want uh, the strife and rancor to prevail that are currently prevailing. We can disagree across political uh, spectrums, but we cannot allow people to divide us by immutable characteristics like race and gender. Okay, so I'm thinking about the, the, all this yesterday, and I'm thinking about, um, because with cancel culture out there and with some of the things that are being taught in our public schools and some of the ideologies that are being taught in our public schools and our private schools, by the way, um, it seems to me to be a very difficult battle for Christians to win, the battle for truth, the battle for loving your neighbor as yourself. These are not common approaches to modern society. We have a lot of people who are getting very rich and very popular and and gaining a lot of power and prestige over the politics of division, ideologies that divide us. Winning that battle is a hard battle. So I'm thinking yesterday as I'm reading my Bible and praying in the morning, Lord, where can I draw instruction? And what's the biggest mismatch that most people, even those who are not dialed in and nuanced in their faith. What's the biggest mismatch you can ever think of? The biggest battle that appeared to be won before it was engaged? David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath. So I just felt like I should go to read the story of David and Goliath to see if there was anything in there that I could glean from it. Now, we all know that Goliath was a monster and that David was a little shepherd boy and that David won by you know slinging a stone and hitting Goliath in the forehead and killing him dead. And the, I think, prevailing thought is that God intervened there and David won and there was no way David could win. But that's not exactly true. Uh, as I read the story, Goliath was not just big. He was nine feet tall. <laughs> nine feet tall. His sword was so mammoth that many people could not barely lift it. Okay, so this was a guy. And what, what, this, what happened was you had the children of Israel on one side of a valley and you had the... Um, uh, Philistines on the other side of the valley, and Goliath would come out every morning and he would yell across the valley and he would insult the Israelites and taunt them and say, "Hey, you got anybody over there who thinks he's a tough guy? I tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. You come out here, you fight me. If you beat me, you win. But if I beat you, we take you captive." Well, nobody wanted to take on Goliath. <laughs> nobody over there on Israel did. King Saul didn't want to. They're all cowering in fear. Like, how are we going to get rid of this guy? 
So King Saul made a bunch of promises. Hey, you know, if any of you guys want to go out there and fight Goliath and win, well, I'll give you my daughter in marriage and a lot of gold and silver and blah, blah, blah. Well, nobody wanted to take him up on it because they're like, yeah, that'd be cool, but I don't want to get crushed by this dude. So nobody took him up on it. So David happens upon this situation one day while he's going to visit his brothers. He's not even in the army. He's out tending the sheep. His dad goes, hey, this is a little different then. They didn't have like, you know, K rations. You took food to the battlefront to feed your relatives. So David shows up with bread and his brothers are like, what are you doing here, you little runt? Get out of here. And he's like, what did I do? I brought you food. Well, while he's there, he hears Goliath yelling across the valley. Hey, you lousy Israelites. Ripping and yelling at him. And David's reaction is, who's this dude think he is? Like, what's he doing insulting the armies of the living God? Like, that's in, that insult, that's insulting. I'm going to take care of this guy. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, sure you are. Sure you are. And he's like, well, bring it. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. So King Saul hears about this. He calls David in. He goes, really? You want to go out there and fight that guy? And David's like, yeah. And Saul's like, what makes you think you can beat him? And David says, hey, hey. I'm a shepherd, man. When a bear or a lion steals one of my sheep, I go find that lion and that bear, and I kill it, and I take my sheep back. So who's this guy compared to a bear or a lion? So David, and this is our, the lesson here in how do we fight this culture battle? How do we fight this battle for truth where people go, oh, you're so hateful, you Christians. David relied on past experiences. He was emboldened by his past experiences and his past successes. He looked at Goliath and thought, he's not so tough. Like He's big, but he's not a bear. He's not a lion. I've beaten them. Why can't I beat him? Plus, he's on the wrong side. He's on the wrong side of this battle. He's over there like with these people who don't know God. We got God on our side. What are we afraid of him for? So I would say to you, and me. What has God done in your life? What has he brought you through? What triumphs have you won? What lions and what bears have you seen God defeat in your life? Do you know you're on the right side of the battle in standing up for truth and standing up for scripture? If you do, what are you afraid of? So you can't look at the giants who you battle against and see their size their sword, their weapons. You can't say, they're so big, I can't win. You have to look at them like David did and say, he's so big, I can't miss. Now, what did David fight with? Saul, the king of Israel, said to David, well, you know, okay, little guy, if you're going to go out there and fight him, at least put my armor on, at least give yourself a shot, right? Here's my modern weapons to go fight with. And David tried it on. And I bet he walked around and the helmet was probably over his face and the armor was too big and he couldn't move and he was like not nimble and fluid. And so he said to Saul, I can't wear this stuff. I, I, I can't do what I do. I wouldn't beat a lion or a bear if I had this stuff on because I'd be like too encumbered. So David didn't fight with conventional weapons. So we can't fight this battle against culture, this battle against error. We can't fight with the same weapons 
the Goliaths in our life have. We can't fight that battle with anger. We can't fight that battle with name-calling. We can't fight that battle with intolerance. We got to fight like David did. We got to fight with the things that have delivered us before. Prayer, truth. Now, David, before he went and fought Goliath, he went over and he picked up five smooth stones. Because in a sling, slingshot, you want a smooth stone so that as you're whipping that thing around, it stays in that sling. No air gets in there so it doesn't fall out, you know, as you're slinging it. And then it like flies better. The smoother it is, less air resistance. So what are the five smooth stones that you can fight with? I think this was what I asked myself yesterday. I was like, all right, what are, what are my five smooth stones? My five smooth stones may not be your five smooth stones, okay? Because we all have unique gifts, talents, abilities, past experiences. But here are the five smooth stones that I wrote down, and I'm very specific in these, okay? For me, my five smooth stones in this battle against culture are, number one, assurance. I don't fear what's going to happen to me. David didn't fear what's going to happen to him. What's my basis for that assurance? My basis for that assurance is Jesus saying at one point in his ministry, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. So I know Jesus is with me, so I have assurance, okay? I have scripture. I have scriptural truth. The Bible is objective truth preserved through centuries for our strength, for teaching, for admonishing, for inspiration. I shared with you a couple podcasts ago when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Knowing the scriptures and the power of God, I have the scriptures on my side. That's my second smooth stone. My third smooth stone is my commitment to do this out of gratitude for what God has done in my life and what Jesus did for me at the cross. In the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to the people listening to him on the hillside, among the things he said to them, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to strive, you're hungering, thirst, you're famished, you need it, you must have it to sustain yourself. Not water, not wine, not beer. What are you hungering and thirsting for? Not food, not water, not beverages. You're hungering and thirsting. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for truth, for right, for what's right. If you are committed to that, if you are striving for that, you will be blessed, he said. So that's where my commitment comes from. My fourth smooth stone is truth. I know that the things that we talk about in terms of winning the culture war against immorality, against error, against hatred, against rancor, against racism, and people who pervert race into the explanation for divisions in our society where race does not apply, I know that that is error. How do I know that? I know that because one of my smooth stones is scripture, right? I'll take as gospel little g what Jesus said every single time. 
And what did Jesus say? He says, if you hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if I want truth on my side, if I want truth as my fourth smooth stone, then I have to know what truth is. And what did Jesus say about what truth is? He said, if you hold to my teaching, you'll know the truth. So if you do what I say to do, you live the way I say to live, you treat people the way I say to treat people, then you'll be in the truth, and that truth will set you free. So my fourth smooth stone is truth. And my fifth smooth stone, because everything we're supposed to do is supposed to be seasoned with love, my fifth smooth stone is love. Now, love does not mean, oh, I love you, so whatever you say is okay, and I'm not going to say anything that would contradict your opinion, and I'm tolerant, and judge not, lest ye yourself be judged, which is the most misapplied verse in the Bible, which it does not mean we are not supposed to judge. It means we are not supposed to judge by a standard we are not prepared to be judged by. For instance, there are many Christians who are all out front against homosexuality, against a lot of things that are immoral in their eyes. Meanwhile, they're like looking at pornography or cheating on their wife or flirting with their secretary or whatever. So they're they're not willing to be judged by the same standard they're judging others. That's what that scripture really means. It doesn't mean don't judge. It means whatever standard you establish to judge others, you're going to be judged by that standard. But when I say love as a smooth stone in my pouch, like David's five smooth stones. I mean that I'm specifically focused on the aspect of love where Jesus said, greater love hath no man than he would give up his life for his brother. I fully understand that my commitment to truth, my battle against the Goliaths in culture, against race hustlers, against false pastors who teach a false gospel, who make salvation a condition of some behavior or task you have to pair with what Jesus did at the cross, I fully understand that calling that out may result in me bearing a consequence. I could lose a job. I could be harmed physically. Any degree of pain could be visited upon me. If that has to be the cost then I consider that to be extending love by laying down my life, my comfort, my, my provision, my, <laughs> my plans, laying it down to save people from being trapped in thought processes, behavior, attitudes, movements, that draw them away from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So those are my five smooth stones. They don't have to be the same as yours. You can define. You can have the exact same name on your stones. You may define it differently. It all depends on what God's calling you to do, how he's calling you to do it. And so that is um, what I gathered from the David and Goliath story. And I would note this. I would note this. When David went out to battle Goliath with his slingshot, with his five smooth stones, he did not sneak up on Goliath. He did not walk into the battle. The Bible says that he ran into the battle. He ran in there. And the vivid picture that I get of that is like a first responder who runs into a dangerous situation. The officer in Boulder, Colorado, who ran into that King Super's supermarket when he heard gunfire. He ran to the battle. 
the firefighters in New York who ran into the towers, the people on I-71 the other day who ran to that vehicle that was about to burst into flames and drag the woman out. They ran into the battle. They were eager. They were ready. They were armed. I hope you'll join me in protecting our kids, protecting the futures of people who, if we don't run into the battle, will be swayed by the false teaching that's out there about you have to embrace critical race theory, you have to embrace white guilt, you have to embrace this, that, the other. All being taught in the name of tolerance, all being taught in the name of love, all being taught in the name of kindness. Nope. It's a false gospel. Satan does not care whether you take an elevator to hell or a train or get there by mis- by your in your mind what you think is a mistake like wait a minute no i i i followed this this and this i i did this and this i'm a good person i did this i i blah 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 jesus said that you know if you want to belong to the father believe on the one he sent and that was him the truth is what i just told you about my stone if you hold to my teaching You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Christ did it all for you at the cross. Nothing you have to do as a checklist. Check that box. I went to church. I got baptized. I was. My parents went to church. I give to the poor. Blah, blah, blah. The Bible says those are filthy rags. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do them. It means you should do them out of gratitude, out of a pure heart, to authenticate your understanding that Jesus did it all for you, that your redemption, your forgiveness is done by his death at the cross, and his resurrection means you rise to a new life. So what is that new life? That new life is leaving behind all the erroneous thought, behaviors, attitudes, language, etc. that you had before. You don't do it because it's necessary to be saved. You do it as your thank you note, as your gratitude to God for what he's done for you. So that's what I have for you today in the faith portion of the podcast. Friday, I am off from work, and it's Good Friday, and I can't know at this point in time if I'll be back with a podcast or not. That's why you should subscribe, so that if I am, it pops up on your phone. That would be awesome. So thank you, guys. Appreciate it very much. Have a great day. Talk to you soon.